so let's start with a word of prayer before we turn to our study tonight. Father God, I pray that you would give to us wisdom and understanding as we open up your word. We want to learn truth. We want to understand doctrine. We want to see the glory of your character. But Father, as well, we need discernment to apply these things to our lives so that we practice those things that are in accord with your will. Give me the ability to speak tonight on these things and give to all of us a heart to receive what you've written for us in your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you would turn with me to Psalm 25, it is somewhat unfortunate that we last looked at the first part of this study back in January, and there's been a few weeks in between. And I have named this particular prayer in our study tonight um, a prayer for guidance, and I trust that you will clearly see that as I read it in just a few moments, and I want to just highlight again, you see in verse 4, 8, 9, 10, and 12, the words, the way, the path. David is again and again appealing to the Lord, show me the way, show me how you want me to live. He's the king of Israel, likely he's the king of Israel at the time of this writing. And we'll see tonight he's facing a lot of problems, many enemies again. I was trying to think of an example or kind of an object lesson. I couldn't come up with anything, but it struck me as I was singing that song, Standing. I had worked for Della's husband in construction for 14 years, and her husband, who was my boss, would always say the same thing over and over again when we come, when we start building a house or remodeling. Um, it was always his emphasis that what the customer wants, we got to give them. So if he, would used to, he used to say repeatedly, if they want the bathtub upside down, we're going to put it upside down. And you got tired of hearing this because he kept saying it over and over again. If they want it upside down, want put it upside down. But in reality, he would never do that. If the homeowner said, Al, put the bathtub upside down, he'd say, no, fine, get somebody else. We're out of here. That's how he would do it. So as far as giving the customer his will, there was a little bit of um, conflict there. And I see that a little bit with our walk of faith with Christ. We want to walk in God's will. But is it not hard at times to do the things that God wants us to do, let alone do the things that we're not sure God wants us to do? And I've highlighted that before. There are many things in God's word that clearly articulates his will, like moral things or church government kinds of things or the Ten Commandments. That's clearly stated. But who we marry, or should I take this job, or other issues that a Christian will face in life, we can't exactly turn to chapter and verse and find, thus saith the Lord, move to Connecticut. So, how then do we discern the will of God? And I told you before, books have been written on this subject that go far, far beyond what we're doing tonight, and Psalm 25 does not answer every issue. But there are principles here that we can take away, and I trust that we'll see those as we walk through our text tonight. Now, just highlighting where we were several weeks ago, we looked at the first three verses, and we looked, understood from the Hebrew culture, the honor-shame system is there with David, and we'll see that word shame later on in this psalm. But David did not want to be shamed by his enemies. He wanted to be found in a place where God would provide. God would take care of him. He didn't want to be abandoned by God. And that word abandoned has a lot to do with shame here. 
David wanted to appeal to the Lord and know that the Lord would minister to him. We then just started to step into the second part of our study, beginning in verse 4 and 5, and that's as far as we made it a couple of weeks ago. But this is where we consider the way of secrecy and the way and path. Again, I'm using those two, two words deliberately because it is David's appeal for guidance. Show me the way. Show me the path. But you will see in verse 14, David uses that word, the secret ways of the Lord, the secret things of the Lord. And it's understood, I think, by all of us that some things are not clearly articulated. So David is appealing in this prayer. We think of this as a psalm, as, as a musical piece, but it's also very much a prayer. He is appealing to God for guidance. Show me the way. And sometimes that way is not clearly seen. But again, we're looking for principles and truths in God's word where we can discern our way through life. And I believe that last time we made this point um, that in this understanding of God's will and learning God's will, it's a matter of discerning the principles and truths of Scripture and applying them to those things in life that we need answers for. And we can easily find ourselves in exactly the position David is here or was of appealing to the Lord uh, for wisdom and knowledge to know the way and the path of God. So let's read this psalm again. You can follow along with me. It's only 22 verses. We learned last time it was written in an acrostic. If we knew the Hebrew alphabet, we would see that. We aren't going to see that in our English language. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Let, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. In verse 6 is we're going to pick up our study tonight. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, and therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice, and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way that he should choose. His soul will abide in prosperity, and his descendants will inherit the land. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he will make them know his covenant. My eyes are continually toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look upon my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins." Look upon my enemies, for there are many of them, and they hate me with violent hatred. Guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed, for I take refuge in you. Let the integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all of his troubles. Tonight, again, we're going to begin in kind of the middle of that second part, the way, the path that is sometimes unknown or mysterious to us, the way of secrecy. And in verse 6 and 7, you highlight the words remembering and forgetting. Again, David is appealing to the Lord by prayer. 
And he says, remember, O Lord, your compassion. So he's asking God to remember his own character, which seems kind of strange because God is not a God to forget who he is or how he acts with his people. And I think it's important to see that David is not challenging God's poor memory here. We would never think such a thing. We wouldn't suggest that. Rather, David is looking back and he's recalling, this is how God has been to me. Remember your compassions and your mercies in the past and apply them to now because I need them now. This is the sense that he's, he's actually praising God, in my opinion, because notice the emphasis on the eternal. <clears throat> You've been from of old. God has always been this. So he really doesn't need to remind God. David is refreshing his own memory, and if anything, David is praising God for his eternal attributes. God's not going to change. That's what he's saying in this prayer. And because, God, you won't change, now extend those mercies and compassions yet again to me now. So David is appealing to God's everlasting character, where he asks God to remember his everlasting nature. He's really calling upon God's enduring character of kindness and love to be applied to David, who is seeking direction from the Lord. Give me guidance. Show me the path. Rather than questioning God's character, again, this is a way of praising and expressing David's trust in God's faithfulness to his people. This is a wonderful thing to say. It is not an easy thing to apply. We want to, to trust in God's eternal compassions and mercies, but do we not often find ourselves again and again doubting those things as if God is going to change his ways? He's been merciful to us in the past. He's not going to change today and tomorrow. But we need to also observe a repeated theme in this psalm. Not only is he calling upon God to be as faithful to him in the past or in the present as he has been in the past, but David is mindful of his own failings in verse 7. Do not remember. He's asking him to remember the character of God, verse 7, but don't remember my character, my failures, and my sins. And this is something that has been brought up in our study of the other Psalms. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. David is unwilling to presume upon God's grace and mercy by ignoring his own sins. And this is a point I believe is so badly ignored in our modern Christian times with many modern believers because God is love. Many Christians in our day presume that God ignores our sin. He's just going to overlook them. He's just going to pass by them and he's still going to pour out his grace. So sinful or sin-laden Christians will come and pray to God when they have a need but their, their hands are filthy with their own sins. Is God going to reward that kind of effort or that ignoring of our own sins? And the reality is, we've talked before in the other Psalms, this is not the way of God. God doesn't pour out his grace in the field of our sin. He pours out his grace in the field of his own character, which is righteousness and holiness. And in Christ, he has provided for us that way of of renewing ourselves and finding purity and forgiveness and refreshing ourselves again with God. Too many Christians are careless with their own sins. And if we're seeking God's will, if we're truly coming to God and say, show me your path, give me wisdom and discernment, and we're not confessing sin, there's a problem in our lives. So we need to observe this, this fundamental aspect of walking in the ways of the Lord, knowing the paths of God, learning and discerning God's will. 
David is going to bring this issue of his sin up again in this psalm. And I think it's an important point that we need to focus on as we walk daily with the Lord or we're seeking the Lord's will or his discernment and his understanding in the ways that we're to be walking in. Careless, sinful living is not the fertile ground that God chooses to pour out his blessing. And again, we need to make the distinction that because we're walking faithfully, God is not rewarding us with his grace. Because again, grace is unmerited. We don't earn it. So if God pours out his blessing, it is still grace. It is unmerited. But when we're walking faithfully with the Lord, that's where he pours out his unmerited favor. He doesn't work over in the dirty field. He works over in the field of purity and confession and repentance. That's the way I look at it anyway. That's the way I see it. Two different fields. So David comes to this subject. He comes to this prayer. He comes to this request with God with humility, with fear, with confession. Repentance should be part of our regular prayer life. And this, again, is accord with the character of God. David knows God. He knows his character. But he also knows his own sinful tendencies and thoughts. So he humbles himself to confess and appeal for God's merciful forgiveness out of great reverence for God's holiness. He does not request help from God carelessly or without regard for God's justice. Now, the idea of God remembering or forgetting does not appear, and I'm going into my views here. Some of you may have different thoughts on this, but as David says, do not remember the sins of my youth. Oftentimes, we talk about confessing our sins, God forgives giving us of those sins and forgetting them. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. But it is my view that God does not forget. If God forgot David's sin of adultery, and yet he wrote it in his word, it's as if God would come to that part in in the book of Samuel and say, ooh, I don't know anything about that. What happened there with David? God didn't forget David's sin But when it says God forgets, it means God deliberately chooses to remove that sin so far from us that he does not bring it up into remembrance anymore. He doesn't bring it up to condemn us. And that's the beauty of God's forgiveness that you and I as believers need to learn to extend to one another. When somebody comes and confesses their sin and they're seeking repentance and they want our forgiveness, we are to extend it. But do you realize the implications? It means we put that sin away and we don't bring it up against them anymore because that's what God does. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Romans 8. So that's my view on God forgetting. I don't believe that God actually forgets my sin. When it says he forgets, I believe he chooses to remove it away far from me and it does not bring it up in remembrance against me any longer. I suppose there could be other views on that, but... Where verse 7 speaks of God not remembering David's sin, it teaches us that when God forgives, God completely removes that sin. Now, it is possible that there are consequences to those sins, and we may continue to feel his chastening hand, but we have the assurance that there is no condemnation against us any longer. And we could use, again, David's adultery, because David felt the sting of that sin for the rest of his days. Remember, one of the the punishments that God brought was a family that would go crazy on David, and his family went crazy. And he was forever dealing with a family gone wild on David, and it was a heartache for him. 
But God forgave sin. He, gave that, he forgave that adultery in David. And so it is with us. Praying for God's will, we can anticipate not retribution, but the mercy and goodness of the Lord, because this is true of God. Self-examination, confession, repentance should be a consistent part of our prayer life, and it is an instrumental part in learning the will of God that we might walk in his ways. So there, there are basic principles here, I believe, that we're learning or relearning, perhaps, on knowing the will of God, and confession and repentance in prayer is critical to that. Then we come to verse 8 through verse 11, and the character of God is brought up again. David continues his prayer to God where the character of God is highlighted along with the obedient response of the believer. When praying for God's leading, David knows that path that God leads his people on is going to be in accord with the divine character of God. And this is, again, an important truth for us to understand in learning something of the mystery of knowing God's will. Far too many times I've, had, I've heard discussions about Christians, let's just use an example here, a Christian that is saved out of a, um, a destructive pattern of sin, let's say an addiction. And in their zeal for Christ, they will say perhaps, I feel led to go back to the tavern and just share Christ with the drunkards there. And eventually they fall back into sin. Well, is it really God's leading to take him back into the place that's going to be harmful to his soul? I think we can throw out that term, God is leading me here, sometimes too carelessly. God will lead according to his character. So where there is the holiness and the righteousness and the justice, and you will notice that in this psalm, this is what David begins to bring up in verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. What way? The way of goodness and uprightness. According to the character of God, verse 9, the same thing. He leads the humble in justice. He teaches the humble his way. What again is that way? The way of God's character, the way of justice, the way of righteousness. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth. This is the character of God. So in discerning his will, we should be looking for those things in life where God leads us towards that character, loving kindness, truth, justice, uprightness and goodness. It would be foolish of us to think that God is leading me in a way that's opposite or antithetical to his character. Consider what motivates the Christian to make decisions in life. Sometimes it's money, very often success, financial benefits and prosperity, ease and comfort, temporal happiness, pleasure, and very often our own lusts and desires, although we don't want to admit to many of those things. And what we hear Christians say far too much is they just felt that God was leading them in that direction in life. But they're not being honest with themselves. Because what is probably leading in some of those areas is a desire for success or money or what have you. So if we're honestly looking for the, the leading, the path of God, the, the ways of God, to know God's will, we must understand it will always be in accord with his character, and it could never be otherwise. If asked whether or not our decisions were the will of God for, for our life, we're probably going to say, well, yes, I believe it is God's will for my life that I do this thing. 
But if they were to attempt to justify, if we had to justify this path as God's will according to his character, could we do it? Do we stop and ask ourselves those questions? Is this according to his goodness, his justice, his righteousness, his truth? Does it exalt his character in some way? And I believe this is one of the important questions we need to ask of ourselves when pondering decisions that are a bit mysterious or uncertain to us. Am I choosing his path or mine? And this is where verse 9 tells us that God leads the humble. That humility is the sense where I'm saying to God, not my will, not my desires, not my motives. I want to trust in you. Show me your way, not mine. Does this path that I'm considering take me down his way of righteousness and truth? Will it be good for my soul? How many times do we ask ourselves that? Will it be good for my soul? Will it help to sanctify me? Will it reveal God's justice and mercy? Along with humility, David points out that the truly humble person is seeking God's will over their own as an obedient believer. Character of God, but obedience to that character. That's part of this humility that he's communicating. I will go your way, God. I humble myself before you. And here is David the king of Israel, a very successful king. We would think he's an honorable man, good on the battlefield, wise in discernment, but he doesn't trust himself. And that's why he appeals to God, and he says so in humility, not me, I need to know your way. By faith, we've surrendered our own will to the will of his son, to God's son. That's what we do as believers. The true believer is saved by grace alone, to be sure, but we have a new Lord and Master, and his name is Jesus. So are we looking for his way? Disobedient Christians will most certainly struggle to know God's will, let alone live in God's will. So God's character and our obedient response to his character is, again, an essential part of learning the will of God for our lives. This brings us to verses 12, 13, 14, and 15. Fear and focus... David writes of those who fear the Lord. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way that he should choose. His soul will abide in prosperity and his descendants will inherit the land. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him and he will make them know his covenant. My eyes are continually toward the Lord for he will pluck my feet out of the net. I use the words fear and focus because this is the disposition of the believer the disposition of David who is seeking to know the will of the Lord. So it's not just a matter of dropping to our knees and say, God, show me your way, and then we go and get up and we do our own thing. There's a disposition here in our hearts, in our posture before the Lord, and that fear has the aspect of great reverence with God, treating him as holy with great fear and respect. It's a disposition of submission and desire at the same time. It's not cowering before God as a God that's going to beat me down, but it's a fear that shows great reverence and desire. We're expressing a love for God, a passion for him. At the same time, we're recognizing his majesty and his greatness. And the person who has their eyes fixed continually on the Lord, as David says here in verse 15, continually his eyes are fixed on the Lord. That's the person who watches and studies God. Why is, again, David such a good hymn writer? 
It's because he knows God. If our modern-day Christian music writers would learn that lesson, know God first, then write music, instead of writing some of the gibberish that comes out on the Christian marketplace today, David wrote music because he knew God. He had studied the character of God. He'd watched God. This is one who sought the ways of the Lord over his own, who defers to God and finds pleasure in the Lord. This description of fear and focus is not a casual interest in God and in his ways, but I see it as a very intense and reverent pursuit of God. It's continuous. We might say persistent with great admiration. And this is the disposition of the person that God will instruct and that God will bless as we read there in verse 13. His soul will abide in prosperity. His descendants will inherit the land. This is the blessing of God being poured out. We've already acknowledged that that there can be a mystery to God's will because it's not always clearly seen. And I believe this is very intentional by God. His will is reserved for certain ones that fear him and that persistently pursue him in great reverence. And this should tell us that God does not reveal the secret things of his will to just anyone. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and you look at verses 8 through 10, even the gospel itself is not treated that way. God does not reveal the things of Jesus Christ to everybody on the world, in the world. He reveals them to his elect. And if God didn't do that, the natural man, according to Paul, would not discern these things. We wouldn't understand it. That's why Paul says they crucified the king of glory. They didn't get it. They didn't understand who he was because the spirit had not revealed these things to them. This is true of what David is saying here. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him. God will reveal himself to those that have this posture of reverence and a continual pursuit of the Lord. So if we're living a casual, sloppy Christianity that once in a while pops into prayer and occasionally reads our Bible and comes to church on Christmas and Easter, and then we find ourselves in a fix and we're desperately wanting to know the will of God, are we probably going to find it? I would think probably not. There's some issues of confession that need to be dealt with. Issues of fear and humbling ourselves before the Lord. There are just a number of principles like that that David is showing us as far as knowing the paths and the ways of the Lord. And I confess to you, I haven't learned all those ways myself. I don't find myself as continually steadfast in these things as I should and I would like to be. But there's a unity of thought here between God and the believer that I believe David is communicating. This is the person who reveres God and is looking for God to be his light and his guide in life. And I believe there's a similar continuity. If you look ahead to Psalm 37 and verse 4, when I'm doing counseling with people, this is a passage I will frequently go to when they're struggling to know God's will. If you look at um, Psalm 37 and begin in verse 3 to follow along with me, listen to what David writes here. Trust in the Lord. And do good. Notice the posture of the worshiper here, the believer. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. If I want a Mercedes Benz, and I say, God, I think I want a fancier car. Give me a car. Probably not going to do it. But then I can honestly say, I'm not delighting myself in the Lord. So this health prosperity movement, 
That's not what David is all about here. Put ourselves in pursuit of God. And then my heart will be desiring what God wants. And he will then give me the desires of my heart. Why? Because my heart is desiring what his heart is desiring. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him. And he will do it. Why is that a promise to us? He will do it. Because God's going to do what God wants. And I want the same thing. So it's not a matter of me changing God's mind and getting him onto my page of desires, but getting my heart onto his page of desires. And David is showing us this, at least in part, in Psalm 25. I'm I'm having to skim over this very quickly, so I'm sorry about that, but we've got to turn our attention to the final stretch of the psalm, what I call the way of safety here, because David is finding his refuge in the Lord. So verse 16 to verse 22, we're going to go over just very quickly um, to finish out this study. But you can say David, again, is in difficult times. His heart is troubled. There's a lot of enemies, and they have a very violent hatred for him. So David is feeling again the affliction of those who oppose him. And we've talked about this before because many, many of David's psalms are appealing to God because of his enemies. Why does he have enemies? It's because David's walking with the Lord. It's the same dimension that you and I deal with. If we're walking faithfully with the Lord, we're living in Christ and preaching Christ, there's a world out there that doesn't like Christ. And Jesus told us that. They're not going to like you because they didn't like me before you. This is what David is experiencing as well. David is a man after God's own heart, but the world is not. So he had many enemies. And he pleads with the Lord to guard the outer man, to protect him physically. But I want you to note, he's also asking the Lord, guard the inner man as well. He prays for his soul. He prays that he would be guarded. Verse 20, on the inward, deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed. In other words, don't abandon me. Don't abandon me spiritually and don't abandon me physically to my enemies. He was concerned for his walk of integrity and his uprightness. So he asked God to preserve him in in God's path of righteousness and observe that David is again asking for forgiveness in these verses. Verse 18, look upon my affliction and my trouble and forgive not just one or two of my sins, not just the big ones, all of them. David was not going to be content if he left any stone unturned. And I have to say, when it comes to my personal confession life, I don't even do that. I kind of gloss over the little ones, and I go for the big ones. We're learning a lesson here from David. All of our sins, confess them all, bring them to the Lord. And David is saying, forgive them all. I want to be clean before you, pure. And this is how David takes refuge in the Lord in this way, through prayer, through worship, confession, repentance, and praises, through his appeals to God for forgiveness and guidance, instruction. That's Dave's place of safety. That's his refuge. Is this how we find protection in the Lord? Where we're endangered, where we're threatened, and we're surrounded by troubles. Not just the world outside, but very often it's the church within that can afflict us. Psalm 25 has given us some help in this matter. And David closes this hymn by remembering the people that God has given charge to him over. It's very natural for David to pray for himself and then for his nation. 
God has placed David in a ruling position over Israel. He knew his own weaknesses. He knew the power of his enemies over him. And he knew his own sinfulness. As the king and shepherd of Israel, David knew he needed guidance and instruction. There's an application to parents here, moms and dads. David knew he needed guidance and instruction of the Lord to care for God's people. And if the king needed this of God, so did the nation. David knows the place of safety for himself and for his people. Now, just very quickly, I'm just going to give us kind of a, a few fundamental summary statements, if you will. And I'm not going to go into a lot of time on these, but number one, as we look over this hymn, and remember in our first study, we looked over some other principles as well. These are going to be different ones. But number one, the necessity of continual confession, repentance, and dealing with our own sins. We've seen that all throughout this hymn. It's come up again and again. And in order for us to actually do this, and we come to a verse like uh, verse 18 where it says, all my sins, it means we actually need to stop and do some good, hard self-examination and then come to that quiet place with the Lord and says, I haven't been good at this. I failed at that. My words were not kind. I was reading in Proverbs just a um, couple of days ago, and I don't remember exactly where it's found, but it says what is desired in a man is kindness. What is desired in a man is kindness. How many men do we know that exemplify kindness? Men are known for harshness, vulgarity, rough treatment. Do I pray for these things? Have I been kind? Have I exhibited kindness? Have I, have I pursued some lustful thing, riches or whatever? David wanted all of those things taken care of. And it shows, this hymn shows to us the necessity of continually being in confession, repentance, and dealing with our sin. And this is going to be, again, a humble posture. The fear of God is present here. And we need to, uh, to do that time of self-examination. Number two, obedience to God's known will leads to learning his secret will. Obedience to God's known will leads to learning his secret will. There is no substitute for submitting to Jesus as our Lord. What he says to us is to be obeyed. He doesn't give us helpful suggestions. He gives commands and instructions. And we are living in a culture that likes to do away with law. Because God is a God of love, a God of grace. He's not so big on law and obey and rules and commandments. That is a lie. Our God instructs in the path of righteousness because we're not prone to be on the path of righteousness. We need his laws. And like David, we should develop an attitude that loves the law of God. How many times do we read that in the Psalms? God, I love your laws. Can we say that about ourselves? Tell me what to do because I want to obey you. Obedience to God's known will is going to lead to learning his secret will. And I emphasize the word learning there because it's learning to use the discernment of principles and truths in God's word and applying it to our lives. William Plummer, notice the quote at the bottom of the page. No ceremonies, professions, raptures, or revelations did ever, can ever, take the place of sincere, hearty, unquestioning obedience to all God's known will. It's a good statement for us. And number three, 
Again, I'm going to use the word continually, but continually looking to Christ, looking to him and searching his word will guide us in God's ways and paths. I don't think there's any shortcut to this subject of knowing God's will. You're not going to go out and and buy a a 100-page book and figure it all out. This is a process, and it's not going to come easily or quickly, but we're going to find it in Christ. We're going to find it in his word. That much I am sure. Eyes fixed on Christ. Um, My eyes continually towards the Lord, as David said. Fixed in prayer, fixed in meditation, fixed in seeking his truths, his character, his instruction, his promises to guide us. Knowing the character of God is principle in David's psalm here. So continually looking to him, guidance in his will must come from his word. And this implies the study of God's character, his promises, looking to his teachings, spending much time in prayer, thinking about what we're reading and meditating on it, and looking for ways to apply it. Not just reading our devotion in the morning, setting it down, and then picking up our tools for the day and going after the business of the day. My eyes are continually toward the Lord. I believe this should be our motto. My eyes are continually towards the Lord. We must learn to learn the discipline of being a good student. Father in heaven, I know that we have just kind of scratched the surface and glossed over many truths here. But I pray, Father, that you would teach us to learn from your word, to be guided from your word, to understand in discernment what your will is from the truths and the principles that you've given to us in Christ and in his word to us. I know this is a learning thing for us, and we're still in that process of being students of your will. So would you continue to patiently and persistently teach us these things and help us to apply them to our lives in Christ's name. Amen.